Well, good morning, church family. I'm Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. You talk about the gospel and the song. Man, I didn't want that to end, right? Oh, man, too good. But alas, we move on and we continue to worship as we open up God's word. Now, we've been in a sermon series entitled Road to the Cross, and we've been looking at the gospel of Luke's account of Jesus and his disciples on the road to the crucifixion. And we're actually going to take this all the way up to Easter. Now, last week, Pastor Mitch prayed on Peter's denial. This week, we're going to take, we're going to backtrack just a smidge. We're going to go to an account that occurred right before the denial of Peter. So if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, Luke 22, verse 39 through 46. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs, page 882. It'll get you right there. Now, before we do that, and before we read our scripture for today, I want to do something. I want to do a little thought exercise. You remember those back in school? Close your eyes. Picture. Imagine. The prettiest of beaches, right? You remember those? Yes. Okay, we're all adults, so you don't have to close your eyes. But if it helps you focus, sure. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Think of the darkest place you've ever been. Think of the place of anguish and pain, discouragement and despair. Think of the place where you you were alone in your suffering and all your worst fears were about to come true. Think of the place where the one thing you wanted was the very one thing God had determined you could not have. Think of the place where you were trapped and there seemed to be absolutely no way out. Think of the place where you wish to God that you could be anywhere else in the universe except the very place where you were. Think of the place where things got so bad that you almost thought you were going to die and maybe almost did. All right, if you close your eyes, you can open them now. I think one of the hardest places in life to sit is right in the middle of a struggle and storm. It's so hard to sit right in the middle. All you want to do is get out of it. And it's so hard because oftentimes we feel isolated We feel alone, we feel forgotten, wronged, we feel anxious, don't we, and doubtful. We have more questions than answers, and sometimes we never get an answer. So we often ask, where in the world is God in the midst of my trial or struggle? Where is he right now? Why me? Why is this happening? Where are you, God, now? It's such a hard place, church family, to sit and remember God's perspective and not be influenced by our own perspective and view of things. So today's passage is going to take us into Luke's account of a very, very dark place that Jesus went. Praying on the Mount of Olives before ending up on that rugged cross. So I want to invite you, if you're able and willing, 
to stand in honor of reading the Word of God as we read Luke 22, 39 through 46. Here we go. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thank you. You may be seated. So today, we're going to look at the Mount of Olives and how the Mount of Olives was a place of a solitary struggle, solitary suffering, and solitary submission. So let's take a look at how that place was a place of solitary struggle for Jesus. Well, we find the beginning of this in verse 41 and 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here we have Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Olives, as was their custom. So what that meant was during the day, they were in the city, city of Jerusalem, in the temple, having a great time. At the end of the day, they would leave, come out of the city, down through the Kidron Valley, and literally up on the Mount of Olives, which was overlooking. You can even see the Temple Mount from there. And think about how good of a time they must have had, right? Singing, praying, fellowshipping together on that Mount of Olives. Not this night. This night was different. And see, Jesus told his disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus went off and prayed. But what we have to note here, church, is the Greek word for temptation also means trial. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, go and pray that you may not enter into temptation, that you may not enter into a trial. And Jesus goes to pray for the very trial and struggle that's upon him. See, he intentionally positions himself physically away from everybody else. It says a stone's throw, right? So if you're a major league baseball player, that's quite far, right? If you're like me or an average person, not so much. But either way, he physically positioned himself away from everybody else. He willingly goes to pray alone. He willingly goes to struggle alone. He recognized he needed to go all by himself to be alone with the Father. And it's in this isolation, church, that we see the struggle of Jesus articulated in a most honest prayer to God the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus was literally struggling. He was struggling with the powers of darkness that were driving him to the cross. Our sin, our wretchedness, the powers of darkness that were driving him there. And he was struggling with the will of the Father that was leading him there. This horrible struggle was a secluded one. He had to wrestle with this struggle alone. Physically, 
spiritually, mentally, emotionally alone. And within this prayer, we see the physical effects of this struggle in the posture of Jesus in his prayer. It says he knelt down and prayed. Matthew details a little longer of this same account in his gospel. And Matthew says Jesus falls face down. Either way, kneeling or face down was not custom of the day. Custom of the day was to stand up with eyes towards heaven. And so what we see is Jesus is fully human, beginning to shrink from the horrific death that lies ahead in a posture that expresses agony and struggle. See, this struggle of wills was surely a solitary and solemn one. And within this prayer, we also hear a battle of wills, kind of like an ultimate struggle of wills. One is the will of the Father. God the Father's will for his Son is to drink the cup that the Father has given him. And Jesus, as Son of God, wants to do this, wants to honor honor God. He really wants to do this, but see, Jesus also is fully human. The Son of Man struggled with this. Jesus is asking, is there any other way except the cross? Any other way? I mean, Jesus as Son of Man has this self-preservation that we have, right? Like, we don't voluntarily want to go through pain, right? We don't want to struggle, right? We want preservation of life, right? So we have multiple layers of wills at odds against each other. God the Father, God the Son. But then the Son of God and Son of Man at odds with each other. And to exacerbate the whole situation, this comes at the end of his earthly ministry. See, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus was tempted. And Matthew records the temptation of Jesus by Satan. Let's take a look at Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus boldly rejects Satan by sticking with God the Father's plan. See, he had an offer. A proposition at the beginning of his earthly ministry, right? You can have the crown and not have to suffer the cross. Fast forward to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and it bears much more weight. Much more significance for Jesus. And struggling with this, Jesus asks, is there any other way to save my people? Any alternative to the impending immense suffering of the cross? The struggle was very real, folks, and very lonely, filled with much strife. And to make matters worse, Jesus comes back from praying, and his knucklehead disciples fell asleep. How much more alone do you have to feel? You go off to pray alone, you come back thinking they're going to be praying, and they're snoozing on you. Can you only imagine how lonely and isolated Jesus must have felt that night? Have you ever been faced with a trial or struggle where you felt completely isolated? See, our tendency is typically to recluse and get in our head and just think about the what ifs and what's going to happen and what's next, blah, 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 blah. And then sometimes we sit in the heaviness and weight of the situation paralyzed. 
And then if you're like me, I struggle by becoming a busy bee, by going to everybody else, seeing if there's some other way to work around and through this struggle to get done with it so I can move on. But see, this passage here shows us that there's application in this place of struggle and trials. Going to God the Father willingly and intentionally. We see Jesus going to God the Father in prayer because of the struggle that he was facing. Jesus knew that God is present in prayers offered to him, even when you're alone. But see, the question is, church, where in the world is God in the midst of my struggle? Where is he? Matthew 6 shows us. See, as Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says this. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is where? In secret. And your father who what? Sees in secret will reward you. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? When you go to God, even in the secret, even at the loneliest place, God sees you. God is there and sees you in the midst of your struggle. He sees you. He's concerned for you in the midst of your struggle. He sees you. He doesn't look away. He sees you. The God of the universe, with all creation under his control, sees little old us in a pitch dark room completely alone. He sees us facing a pitch dark trial or struggle. He sees us praying to him in the midst of the darkness. That's encouraging. That is awesome to know that the God of the universe, no matter how isolated, lonely, dark things get, he sees me when I praise to him. So now that we looked at the solitary struggle of Jesus that night on the Mount of Olives, let's fast forward now to the solitary suffering of Jesus that night. And Luke tells us this. It is the very cup that the Father has given Jesus to drink that is at the core of all of his suffering. Remove this cup from me. See, growing up as a preacher's kid, I always thought that the cup referred to the portion which God gives. And that's, that's correct, but it's not completely correct in our text today. In our text today, what it's referring to is the full wrath of God. That's the portion that's being given to Jesus within this cup. God's judgment on sin once and for all is contained within this cup. Can you imagine? It was a bitter cup. No one would want to drink it. No one could drink it except Jesus, which is why he's saying, remove this cup from me. Is there any other way? And it was in consenting to drink the cup that the suffering of his trial and struggle ensued. See, to drink this cup meant to ingest a crushing weight. What dread and agony must have filled our Savior in this solitary moment of suffering? Norval Geldenheis writes a commentary on Luke, and he summarizes the struggle of Jesus suffering that night alone this way. It is impossible for Jesus, in his perfect humanity, not to experience a feeling of opposition to the idea of impending humiliation, suffering, and death. 
And all this is made the more intense through his knowledge that he is not only going to suffer and die, but that he will have to undergo this as an expiatory sacrifice for the sin of guilty mankind. The atoning sacrifice for all mankind. The final payment for all of mankind. The holy and just wrath of God against sin falls on him in full measure because he has put himself unreservedly in the place of guilty mankind. The judgment pronounced on sin is death, spiritual as well as physical. And spiritual death means being utterly forsaken by God. Get this, church. How dreadful then must the idea have been to Christ who had from eternity lived in the most intimate and unbroken communion with his father, that he would have to endure all of this. That cup was huge. And it's simply saying that Jesus understood that the full wrath of God would also mean complete separation from God. That wrath coupled with the separation from God was horrific for Jesus to understand and accept. And it caused much great suffering. So as the Son of Man suffered alone on the Mount of Olives that night, we see all the physical weaknesses, we see all the mental pressure, all the emotional anguish that is common to us when we suffer being displayed in Jesus Christ himself. And verse 44 continues, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. See, there's two points to this verse we need to talk about that sheds light on Jesus' suffering. The word agony and the sweat becoming like great drops of blood. Let's look at the word agony. See, the Greek for this only occurs once in the New Testament for this word that we say agony. Ready for it? Someone fighting a battle with sheer fear. Don't get the wrong image in your brain, folks. Don't think about the puny guy who's scared to death because of an impending battle coming on him. Think of the strongest person, infinitely much more strong, scared to death of the battle ahead. And so our verse reads completely different now. In battling in sheer fear, what does he do? He prayed. Matthew's account even sheds more light on it because Matthew's account says as, as he was going to leave his disciples to pray, he goes, my, my soul is sorrowful even to death. His soul was sorrowful even to death. He prayed. The disciples' soul was sorrowful. They slept. It's not a coincidence that you have two opposite reactions. Jesus knew who and what he was up against, and it scared him to the point of death. God's very wrath and judgment being poured out on Jesus Christ alone, the very same wrath of God that was shown and displayed on the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, only infinitely worse, was being poured out on Jesus Christ in full measure. John Calvin says this, his horror was not then at death's simpliciter. 21st century, here we go. His horror was not then simply at death. 
as a passage out of the world. But because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sense. The burden on which he had assumed that pressed him down with their enormous mass and it tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. See, Calvin saying the agony of Jesus wasn't simply in death. It was in the thought of carrying the incalculable weight of our sins and being judged with unimaginable fierceness for each and every one of them. And after the agony, it talks about his sweat becoming like great drops of blood. This is actually a documented medical condition called hematohydrosis. Took me a few times to learn how to say that quickly. Hematohydrosis. It's a rare condition. You want to know the cause? Extreme stress, extreme fear, extreme anxiety. Here's what happens. You have capillaries around your sweat glands. They hold blood. And they constrict so tight in such a way during all this stress and fear that when they dilate, they rupture. And it releases blood into the sweat glands and out. So your sweat becomes like drops of blood. And the question is this. What would cause this extreme stress and burden on Jesus? The answer, the world's imputed sin on him. The sin of us placed on him. Jesus becoming our substitute. A stress and burden like none other. The stress came in the substitution of Christ becoming a curse for us. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us, Christ bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. By Some translations even say, by being made a curse for us. Can you imagine? This is no easygoing process. It's unbearable. That's why Jesus had to do it. See, Jesus always knew the effect of sin on others but it never came down on him so closely as it did when he was on the Mount of Olives that night alone, suffering. The iniquity of the world, the sin of the world aroused within Jesus a holy horror. And so in the agony and bloody sweat, we see Christ suffering in that dark place alone. The fear and stress were seemingly so insurmountable for Jesus in his suffering through this struggle of yielding to God the Father's will. But though it seems Christ would resolve to relinquish and give up, he did not. Jesus turned again to God in prayer through his suffering. Verse 44 says he prayed more earnestly. So herein lies our application, church. Pray through your suffering. Do not give up. Continue to meet and converse with God the Father. But even though we're praying through this suffering, the question still comes back to, where is God in the midst of all of my suffering? Hebrews 5 tells us exactly where. In Hebrews 5, this is actually referring to this night that we're talking about on the Mount of Olives. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Did you catch it? God hears us in our suffering when we cry out to him. 
Now, this does not mean that God will answer when or how we want him to. And I know this firsthand. It means he is right here with us and listening to us amidst this seemingly lonely suffering. We can have confidence that our prayer and petition through this suffering is heard. Even though it may not be answered, it's heard. How wonderful to know that on a dark night, with the darkest of struggles, and with the overwhelming reality of our suffering, feeling completely abandoned and alone in that suffering, God hears us. See, God sees us in our struggle when we go to him in prayer. And he hears us in our cries of suffering to him. So now that we've talked about the solitary struggle, the solitary suffering, let's finally look at the solitary submission of Jesus that night on the Mount of Olives. You want to guess where we find the solitary submission? In the prayer of Jesus. Why do you think this is the main verse? This verse, actually the whole Bible kind of revolves around this verse as well. (laughs) The submission was found in that prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Notice the bookends of accepting the Father's will as superior and good within Jesus' prayer. Jesus acknowledged that the Father had the power to acquiesce but still petitioned his request to God the Father. Father, if you are willing, I know you can. If you want to, you can. I know you have the ability to, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I'm going to tell you what I really want. I want you to remove this cup from me. Take it away. But notice the action statement at the end. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's acknowledging that God the Father's will will be done. And even though Jesus desires something different, he is submitting to the fact of the Father's will being a better outcome regardless of the desires of Jesus. Now we must note here the tone in which Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will be yours, yours be done. I've got many kids. And I almost don't even have to hear the word that they say by listening to the tone. That's why text messaging and all this digital stuff, kids, is, yeah. You can't hear what the person's really saying because you don't hear the tone in the text. Right? If my child goes, Dad, that's a problem. If he goes, Dad. If she goes, Dad, Dad. I don't even have to tell you what they're feeling. You know in their tone. And we have to note that this was not a tone of helpless submission. Like Jesus going, "Ah, you're the father, I'm just the son, okay, your will. And it's not a tone of someone who's being bullied. Like, you're more powerful, fine, you're forcing me to do this, dad, so I'm going to do it. That's not the tone of Jesus at all. And it's not a tone of complete and utter frustration. Dad, you never give me what I want every time I ask for what I want. So fine, I'll just do what you're telling me to do. That was not his tone. You want to know what his tone was? Complete and perfect trust. See, this prayer was a prayer of willing submission. It was honest and humble. But honoring to God and the recognition of God the Father's will being good and 
perfect. Better than Jesus Christ's own human will. It was a submission that admitted that God the Father has the absolute best grasp on the care, concern, and plan for his creation. And I think the question we need to ask is, if Jesus had such a dark and conflicted struggle, if Jesus had such an immensely dark suffering as a result of this struggle, how in the world was Jesus able to willingly submit to God the Father's will? Well, I believe the author of Hebrews says it best. Hebrews 12 says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus recognized that the will of God the Father would ultimately give him joy. After all the lonely struggle and suffering, after all the lonely turmoil and despair, his submission would ultimately bring him complete joy. Want to know why? Because he will be with God the Father forever in unbroken fellowship, seated at his right hand. Jesus understood the long game, church. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the short game. There is joy in Jesus, and it's put before us. That's how Jesus was able to endure the cross. That's how Jesus was able to consent to drink the cup. And if you're tracking with me, then you realize this, this was all about Jesus' submission to God the Father's will and how he was able to submit. But again, the question remains, where is God in the midst of Jesus submitting to his will? Like, God never answered Jesus' request for relief from the cross, right? He didn't. But God did answer according to his own fatherly will. Verse 43 says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Jesus did not ask for strength. Jesus didn't ask for an angel. Jesus asked that the cup, the wrath of God, be passed from him. Remove it. God the Father did not answer his request. And herein lies the application of submitting to God the Father's will. See, God the Father answered the prayer of Jesus according to his own will. God saw Jesus in his struggle when Christ petitioned him. God heard Jesus in his cries of suffering and torment to him. But God the Father answered according to his perfect will for his perfect son. God the Father heard his son's cries of suffering and turmoil and sent an angel to strengthen him. Spurgeon says this, Ah, sir, if you have to bear the burden of your own sin when you appear before the judgment seat of God, it will sink you to the lowest hell. But what must Christ's agony have been when he was bearing the sin of all his people? As the mighty mass of their guilt came rolling upon him, his father saw that the human soul and the human body both needed to be upheld. Else they would have been utterly crushed before the atoning work had been accomplished. God needed to sustain his son to complete the finished work of the cross. So he answered the prayer by sending strength and reassurance that he was with his son Every step of the way. See, God understood that the humanity of Jesus would get crushed before it accomplished what God the Father needed to finish the work 
So he sent help for Jesus Christ's humanity. God the Father answered the prayer, but he answered the way he wanted and needed. Do you understand the enormity of this church family? When we submit and pray in and for the will of God the Father, he always answers. A hundred out of a hundred times you pray in and for the will of God the Father, he answers. When we are in the midst of our darkest struggle, when we are suffering beyond the darkest night imaginable, when we submit in perfect trust to our Heavenly Father's will, God the Father answers according to his good and perfect will. Now, most of you guys know this about me. Um, I'm type 1 diabetic. But what most of you may not know is kind of the story behind it. So I wasn't born diabetic. I, was, I turned diabetic when I was 27. So I was like on my own, single adult, living on my own in an apartment. Um, and... And I just remember, like, all of a sudden, like, things just, like, it was like a crazy snowball. Um, I lost, like, 18 pounds. I was, like, under 120 pounds. I, I had trouble seeing. Um, I, it got so bad, like, I fell asleep going, going to work the next day. Like, I, I left work early the day before, and I just, I slept for, like, 13 hours. It was, like, insane. That never happens. And then I wake up the next morning. I'm like, well, I need to go into work. I fell asleep at the stoplight on my way to work. So I turned around. I called my mom because I had just moved down. I didn't have a doctor. I was like, Ma, I think I have mono. I had it before. I remember that's like it makes you really tired and all that. So I was like, that's what I think. She takes me to the doctor's office. They take a urine sample. They take a blood test. And I thought they would have been gone much longer but, like, the doctor came running in, and I knew something was wrong because then I heard him say, emergency room now, diabetes. And I remember in one gut reaction sucker punch, I just, I, I walked, I ran out of that doctor's office just crying. I didn't know what the diabetes was. You remember that commercial? The diabetes. <laughs> Thank you. Just had to. Make sure I got a laugh. I didn't know what it was, but I did know that it was not good. And it scared me to death. I did not know what light I had. I went from a perfectly sunny day to a completely dark day in a blink of an eye. Next thing I know, I'm in the hospital, and my endocrinologist comes up and says, Derek, I don't know if you know how sick you were, but if you had not come in the ER that day, you probably would not have made it. So when I was giving you that thought exercise, this is where I went. And I remember him saying, you should never have walked into this ER with a blood sugar of 985. We don't know how. I can tell you how. God had a purpose. And he purposed diabetes in my life. And I remember being there on the hospital bed, like the last day before they discharged. I could not think of that word for service. I was like dismissed. Um, before they discharged. And... The nurse comes up and she just lays right next to me in the bed, uh, the needle and the vial. And I said, okay, where are you going to stick me? And she goes, uh, you're going to do it. I go, but that's what I got you for. And she goes, and I'll never, I'll never forget this. She said this, you're going to have to do this the rest of your life to live. And now the weight and heaviness of this situation just bore upon me an unbearable weight. I remember going home scared to death. Am I going to do it right? What if I never wake up? 
I'm all alone. Who's going to know? And it scared me to death. And I remember within that first two weeks just praying, God, I don't get it. Take it away from me. Please, I can't bear this burden. It is too much. 13 years later, and I'm very happy to tell you I'm still diabetic. Seriously. I praise God the Father that he purposed diabetes in my life. You want to know why? Because it's a constant reminder of the gospel in my life. Every finger prick, every needle stick, every time I have to count carbs and all that stuff, it's a reminder of the gospel. It reminds me the, the effect of sin on us, on my body. My body's not perfect. That's because of sin. And I realize and thank God that Jesus struggled for me. Because the struggle that Jesus went through was much more unbearable than mine. I'm reminded of the gospel every day that I think I do it absolutely right. I can have my best day counting carbs, exercising, eating right, and my blood sugar still goes cattywampus. I don't get it. But it's a reminder to me that I can try and do everything right, and even my best is not good enough to get to God the Father in heaven. That's why I needed Jesus Christ to suffer for me. My dear friend, Woody Church. <laughs> We're diabetic twins. And we would talk all the time about how the gospel is so evident in our diabetes and we're thankful for it. My dear friend, Woody Church, right now, knew the joy that was set before him. And he is in that joy right now. He doesn't have to worry about finger pricks. He doesn't have to worry about needle pokes. He can eat all the cake he wants forever. He has been made perfect and is in perfect fellowship with God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit right now. And I'm reminded of the joy that is set before me only because of Jesus Christ struggling and suffering for me. See how beautiful and reassuring the hope that I have in Jesus because the Father's will enabled Christ to struggle, suffer, and submit for me and for you. So friend, where are you at today? Where are you? Are you in the midst of a battle? A struggle that seems insurmountable, too big? A struggle that feels so lonely? Are you suffering in a way that makes absolutely no sense? What gives? Or in a way that is too much to bear. Have you cried out to God with no answer? Have you cried in what seems to be a seemingly silent void? Are you left with one question? Where are you right now, God? See, church family, it's not a matter of if trials, struggles, and suffering come. It's a matter of when, because they most assuredly will come. And for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we need to remember to go to God in prayer. We must remember that. He sees us in our struggle. He hears us in our cries out to him. And he always answers when we pray and submit to his will. 
Dear Christian, we should never lose sight of the light of Christ. Even in our darkest struggle, even in our deepest suffering, even in the seemingly silent response of God to our request, please take this cup from me. We must remember by Jesus Christ consenting to drink the cup and ultimately dying on the cross, that enables us to even go to God in prayer. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. It enables us to have a peace that passes all understanding. Knowing that ultimately we will be made perfect and in union with God in heaven forever. The long game. Don't get distracted by the short game. No more suffering. No more shame. No more struggling. Because sin has been defeated once and for all through the perfect submission of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this. O ye who are the true followers of Christ, fear not the clouds that lower darkly over you, for you shall see the brightness behind them and the Christ in them. And blessed shall your spirits be. But if you are not believing in Christ, I am indeed grieved for you. For you shall have the sorrow without the solace, the cup of bitterness without the angel, the agony and that forever and ever and ever without the messenger from heaven to console you. Oh, that ye would all believe in Jesus. Dear Christian brother and sister, let me read it another way. But since you are believing in Christ, I am indeed overjoyed for you. For you shall have the sorrow, but you'll have it with solace. You shall have the cup of bitterness, but you'll have the angel. You shall have agony, but only temporary because of Jesus Christ. For those who trust and believe, there is peace and joy even through the darkest of struggles and suffering. And that's only found in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. But for those of us who have not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, dear friend, please, please listen. There is peace in Jesus. For he took the wrath of God upon himself for you. There is comfort in Jesus. For he endured all the suffering of incalculable harm. He took the weight of your wrongs on him. There is freedom and joy in Jesus for he made a way for you to be with God forever by completion of willing sacrifice on that cross. Let me leave you with this final encouragement out of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's how God will answer. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy God, you are amazing. God, we deserve your full wrath. A wrath that would utterly obliterate us. 
But God, you showed us mercy. You showed us grace. God, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. God, thank you for sending Jesus to struggle and suffer and submit for me, for us here today. God, help us be reminded, God, of the joy that is set before us because of Christ Jesus. God, help us remember that you hear us, that you see us, that you do answer. God, thank you so much for your abounding love. And it's in the holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen.